Hey guys, this is Bad Far, artist from Batgirl, and I am close personal friend with the Corner Nerd. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We are talking to the the creators, the founders, the storytellers behind Isola. We've got Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw. Thank you so much for for bearing with me and getting this interview going tonight. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> no, but we've we've done a lot of these Skype calls now, and and I think it's it's kind of becoming second nature. <laughs> In almost all the the press releases for issue one, you guys are teased as lifelong friends. Now, I want to hear how you guys met, but from differing points of view. Uh, let's start <laughs> with Brendan's initial reaction and then go to Carl. I, I, think, I think it'll probably be a very similar POV. We were, <laughs> I joined Carl's class. He had been in, I, I think you had done one year before me at that school, right, Carl? Yeah, that's right. We we were. I was in. Um, I switched to this school, this, this particular class in grade five, and then grade six was when Brendan came. But I feel like uh, I don't want to. I don't want to mess up your order of stories here. But uh, <laughs> but I think um, it was traditional for like if new people were coming to the class, someone would give them a, a like a tour of the school, and I don't think I gave you the tour, but I think I remember when you showed up for that tour. I don't remember the tour at all. And my, I don't know if we've talked about this. My first distinct memory of you, <laughs> you were sitting at a table with uh, Ty, uh, our friend Tyler Freypont, who I had known before. So uh, I kind of felt like that was an inviting table. You were sitting at the table with Ty and Heil and Shirk and I think Adam Mitta. And everyone was talking about Ghostbusters because it was, <laughs> it was the movie that no one was expecting in that that summer um, mm-hmm. leading into that year. And I think you guys were all laughing about the song or something. And I remember kind of walking up in that sort of awkward new kid at school, a very stereotypical awkward new kid at school way. In, at least from my POV, kind of walking up with that sort of, ha, 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 what, what are we all laughing about, guys, sort of thing. And, and everyone kind of went dead silent and looked at me at the exact same time. We're like, yeah, we're, we're just, you know, singing the Ghostbusters song, new kid. And I remember, uh, say, I remember that song a lot pulling up a chair and going, oh, oh, guys. I can make up some funny new lyrics for that song. It's a thing I can do. And <laughs> you look, you kind of gave this sort of eye roll look over to Heil and then looked back at me and said, yeah, we've already got a guy who does that. And you indicated oh, shirt. Shit. And I was oh. like, oh. For real? Oh. Yeah. And I, I feel like I skulked away, but I probably just sat there in shame. Oh, my God. I've never heard yeah. this story. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> you might as well have just pantsed him right there. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good story. On his birthday, actually, he took us, uh, he and his dad took a few of us to see that movie. It actually scared the hell out of me, in parts. Yeah, that librarian. Hmm. Oh, at the beginning? Yeah. yeah. It's traumatic, and then it's isn't it immediately followed by a piece of uh, raucous music? <laughs> yeah, I think they do like uh, 
I think that like a there's like a circle overlay or something. It kind of zooms in on her face and then then cuts to uh, what is it? It's it's wanna... like wacky guys running out of library and then <laughs> Ghostbusters logo, right? Something like it's that. The logo already? Yeah. Anyway, I think it. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's balance. It's that balance of like terrifying horror. No, it's perfect. Horror That's perfect. And, yeah. I, I just I just remember thinking at the time, like I didn't know what I was getting into going to see that movie and then I was I was probably nine years old and uh that librarian scene happened and I was like it was really a jump scare mm-hmm. and I remember turning to like I've been kind of startled and turning to see Shirk who was just laughing hysterically and then I kind of nervously <laughs> laughed along with him thinking oh okay yeah <laughs> that I'm seems scared, about right, right. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I was along for the ride after that <laughs> so after this kind of emotionally crippling first meeting. You guys still managed to head it off. And how did your careers kind of, was it parallel in the pursuit of comics or was one person more angling that way and the other one eventually met them on the path? Yeah, let let me just jump in and say that as emotionally crippling as that moment might have felt then, getting to know our homeroom teacher (laughs) over, over the ensuing weeks made that seem like uh, a non-event <laughs> because it was <laughs> it was a really challenging it was a really challenging time at school and we became kind of fast friends after that doing a lot of chalk drawing on the asphalt outside and yeah we, we were all drawing inside drawing all the time we were yeah. we would draw all the time together and we would compare like we would draw stuff at home bring it in to show each other and kind of like do critiques and yeah, we were always, and, and the, the, it wasn't just comics. It was like drawings of cartoons. There was a lot of yeah. Voltron and Transformers and He-Man. And a and, lot of Robotech. A lot, a lot of, of trying Robotech. to figure out how to draw Lancer's eye correctly. That eye shape was just baffling. When you come right down to it, I guess, I guess we were just learning, we're learning to draw manga. Right? Like, <laughs> it's just true. trying to figure out how those faces were stylized. But that was... You know, that wasn't our first year of meeting. That would have been the next. Yeah. That would have been late, seven. mid to late grade seven. But anyway, yeah, we were we were drawing all the time. And then the, the comics thing kind of happened later around the time of the the Wolfman Perez Teen Titans and the, the DC Universe role-playing game. Oh, jeez. That that's when we started. That's when I kind of really got heavily into DC stuff. Because prior to that, it was just like, you know, I was into Batman, I guess. Yeah, uh, but but that's when my my sort of uh, knowledge of the DC universe really expanded was which with that role playing game and all the the artwork for all the character cards in there. Yeah, mine too. All that was a Luis Garcia Lopez oh, artwork, gosh, yeah. and then add on top of that, I don't know if you remember this, Carl, but Ty started getting kind of into it a bit, and he went and in some drugstore pharmacy in in Port Colborne he was able to find almost all the issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which had been coming out, I guess, over a few months. And he snatched them up and came to school one day and was like, oh my God, guys, I don't know if you know, but there's this thing called Crisis on Infinite Earths that's happening right now. And it was, uh, that was a bit of a game changer. I mean, Carl and I had discovered ElfQuest prior to that, which was a big comic milestone for us. And that was part of discovering that there were comic book stores and 
entering us into this this larger world of collecting and exploring all the the multiple corners of of the, the worlds of comics and but yeah we had these there were other kids at school who who were bringing these things in that were equally as influential it was a it was a super formative time i think mm-hmm. for my taste well if we're i mean speaking of tastes if we're perfectly honest about it i mean i I didn't find any of this stuff. Like Brendan would go and find this stuff and present it to me oh, at school. And they look at this thing. Yeah. And I, and I, to your liking. <laughs> <laughs> all to make up for that. that Ghostbusters song. <laughs> Please don't let your savage words find me again. <laughs> no, but really that's how, that's kind of the story of our relationship is that you will find stuff, cool stuff and put it in front of me and I'll go, Oh, that's cool. And then we'll, make something along those lines it's kind of true <laughs> it's never stopped happening whether it's music or comics or movies <laughs> like that's how i came to all the, the miyazaki studio ghibli stuff like basically everything there's a part of me that feels a little guilty about shaping your taste <laughs> <laughs> like i kind of wonder what what would you be into like if we hadn't met if i hadn't I, been I forcing you would to not, watch and read things yeah, i would not be into <laughs> comics i don't know what i'd probably be like a probably work in like a, a nature reserve <laughs> <laughs> who knows it would you, certainly have nothing to do with comics you would be in all the canadian magazines and papers as the country's next robert bateman <laughs> well my sketchbooks when i was when i was young were all that really just pencil reproductions of robert bateman paintings yeah, I don't know if you saw this. Like, it was a lot of animal drawings. Like whether it's it was from photographs or, or Bateman's paintings. Like he was kind of a big deal when I was a kid. Yeah, me at, in our house too. We have a few Robert Bateman paintings still up on the wall. I think back at the old homestead. But yeah, you'd probably have ended up as as another Robert Bateman doing like fine art versions of animals or another Jim Davis. Which I guess <laughs> yeah, because I did draw a lot of Charles Christopher. You're kind of going. In that direction. <laughs> True. You know, I mean, before before we met, my, you know, I had superhero comics and stuff that I would get at the grocery store and stuff, but like, and I liked them, but um, the stuff I read a lot were um, Peanuts volumes and Garfield, like stuff oh, that yeah. I would take home from the school library. I read a lot of Peanuts when I was a kid and I had these, I remember like from the Scholastic catalogs, you could get all those like different volumes of, of strips, whether it was Peanuts or Garfield or whatever. I read basically everything. Like any, any newspaper strips that were collected, I would consume. Like a lot of Hagar the Horrible and Heathcliff, I remember I read a lot of, like everything. And so that was, I guess, for, I didn't know it at the time, but it was probably formative. Well, now that we've just had one hell of a digression, uh, would you guys like to talk about Zola? We can if you want. I think that's probably more relevant. <laughs> it, it is actually. I mean, this is. Um, we we haven't talked about most of this stuff. We've done a, a fair amount of interviews, and uh, like all of this stuff that that you're getting out of us today is like your scoop. <laughs> this is all all material we haven't covered before, but it's all stuff that led to us doing the book that we're doing now. Like we've talked about this, and I think even in images PR, they talk about it being a story that's been like decades in the making and that's true you know as obi-wan would say from a certain point of view it's we we've been crafting this in some fashion off and on since we were kids but it wasn't called the isola it didn't have these story points we've just been working on stuff forever and we have as of a number of years ago 
uh, how many would you say now, Carl, seven, six years ago? It became this specific project with this story and these characters, and we've taken all the stuff that we've been doing all these years that is unfinished or just concept stuff, and it's all informing this. And that includes a project that we worked on, uh, another specific project that we worked on for nearly a decade through our 20s oh, wow. um, that has also gone unpublished. And it's the direct relation of Isola. It's also a fantasy adventure story. Uh, it's called Miki, a fantasy adventure story starring two young women. It had a lot of had a lot of fantastic creatures in it, some of which have sort of made their way over their characters and made their way over to Isola. Themes, story themes, story points. It's something we spend a lot of time on. We have a lot of material for And it, it just, we were young and we didn't know how to keep it from ballooning out of control. And it became something that was just larger than, than what we could accomplish at the time. Hmm. Um, or what we could have. We kind of started. It didn't even become that. It, it began as something that was larger than we could, uh, yeah. than we, that we could ever have managed. And then, uh, you know, it just it got, got bigger. More developed. It got bigger, yeah. yeah. But it was always planned as this, this epic three-arc thing that spanned different genres. So just from the outset, that was unmanageable. Do you think now with all your experience, you might be able to go back to that Mickey project? Or is it just Isola all the way right now? Yeah, it's I think just, it's it was just a of a time, you know, like it's, yeah. it, I think we've sort of flirted with it on and off over the years, but I don't really, like so much of it has been picked apart to go into other things that I don't think it's really worth going back to, though I still love those characters a lot. I do too. I just, I see so much of the way we were writing the two main characters I just feel like we wrote them as Olive and Maps in Gotham Academy. I mean, Olive and Maps are really younger versions of the two main characters in that in that story. And it, uh, I almost feel like now I have more of a relationship to Olive and Maps directly. And if oh, wow. I wanted to go back to anything, it would be going back to do more Gotham Academy. I mean, if I wanted to go back and and visit those personalities i think i would probably want to do it there and all of the concept stuff that we worked on and and just the the general kind of story the approach to story uh, approach to style in in the book i think we're doing that here in isla and i think we're doing it in a way more mature way yeah i think that carl's right it was of a time and i think we'll just leave it there Maybe someday if we, you know, if Isola does well enough and we collect a bunch of volumes into a beautiful hardcover omnibus <laughs> edition, maybe we'll include a sort of path to Isola that, uh, you know, reproduces some of that work and shows people what we were doing back then. I could see that happening. Yeah, or it would be a good thing to put up on the website yeah. just for people to check out. I we like a lot of that old Somebody work. with a zip drive that works, really. Yeah, all, <laughs> all on I don't even know what those are. I think I've got a couple of those zip disks um, back at my parents. Oh, wow. Yep. <laughs> are they still functional? That's a good question. <laughs> the way you guys were talking about that previous story, it just reminded me of uh, the Jim Henson graphic novel, Tales of Sand. Yeah, our yeah. friend Ramon drew it. We shared a studio for a while, yeah. That's kind of that's what uh, you guys reminded me of just then. Like this long sweeping epic that had yet to come to fruition. I mean, I think of I think of the Miki project. It's kind of like it's kind of like Final Fantasy VII. You know, like it was really cool at the time, <laughs> and it encompassed a lot of like a lot of the you know the the 
public tastes of the time. Uh, but if you're going to remake it now, it probably wouldn't be quite as magical as it was then. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, Brendan, this one's uh, focused to you. A lot of the stuff that you've written or that you've gained notoriety from have been kind of, I don't want to say street level, but definitely grounded in reality from Gotham Academy to Black Canary to, uh, to Bad Girl, and even to a degree Motor Crush. How did it feel to kind of switch gears to go to something more of a fantasy nature? I, I think it's, it's all about tone and the approach to character. And um, I think in everything that Carl and I work on, we are trying our best, whether it's together or separately, we're always trying our best to be true to the people that we're writing, the characters that we're writing. And I think it's why a lot of my superhero stuff has felt ground level. Also, I mean, I guess I've been working on superhero characters that don't have universe spanning powers. Mm -hmm. But like, I think, you know, Carl and I did this, this Wednesday comics flash story back in 2009 or 10. And that is universe multiverse spanning. It's, it's got a ton of science in it, a ton of classic superheroics, but it also, it maintains that, grounded feeling because at its core it's all about these people and their relationship and and that's the focus of it i mean we even take it down to that being uh as much as much of a, a an evil plan as gorilla grod has in it his story comes down to the fact that he fell in love and did a thing for this person that he had feelings for and i i believe a child with I think we were implying that they had a child in this other world. And I think when, when, when you talk about writing what you know, that's, that's kind of what it is for us. It's about the, the interpersonal relationships. And I, I don't, I think that's what we relate to more so than the uh, high science or high fantasy concepts. Those are all just sort of uh, uh, playgrounds for, for all of, these relationship stories to to play out for us so you know motor crush is very sci-fi it's a bit cyberpunk it's just cast in a very pink glow <laughs> pink sort of seaside rio de janeiro kind of look so it's got a different appearance but but in terms of what it is at its core it's it's that it's it's a sci-fi cyberpunk sports thing but for me, it's about the relationship of of the three main characters, uh, Domino Swift, her adopted dad, Sullivan Swift, and Domino's ex-girlfriend, Lola Del Carmen. It's about how they were a team, and because of secrets and everybody's desires, you know, got pulled apart, and... And as everything gets revealed to everyone, they find themselves coming back together and speaking more plainly about what they want for themselves and for each other. And yeah, I mean, it's it's just, we're doing the same thing here with Isla. It's in this fantasy adventure uh, sandbox, but it's really a story of two women who have a lot of deep feelings for each other but are put in positions where they're not allowed to communicate in the way that they would like to or would otherwise communicate and now uh, simply can't communicate because of a magical situation. 
so I, I see I see that as the pattern I think for us. Is that does that seem right, Carl? Yeah, I was just thinking, listening as well as as you were talking. I was just listening and thinking. I mean, you could sum it all up kind of by saying that we're writing. <clears throat> we're just trying to write sincere stories about characters with a bit of conflict, and the only difference in all these projects is just the worlds that the artists on these books want to draw. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Motor Crush is just a world that Babs wants to draw, and and Ethel is just um, you know to my tastes. So, but but aside yeah. from that, it's just a story about people and relationships. And Carl, I want to direct this one towards you. With the depictions of Queen Olwen in the book, there is a lot of humanity in her tiger form. Do you feel like your work on uh, The Abominable Charles Christopher, which, if you haven't read this webcomic yet, you really, really should. With the work that you've done there, has any of that kind of influenced the other? Uh, I think, well, as I said, I used to draw animals a lot when I was a kid, and then I kind of when I got into comics more, I sort of forgot that I enjoyed that or it just didn't, you know, it didn't occur to me to draw as many animals. And then uh, after a bunch of years of drawing superhero comics, when I started The Abominable Charles Christopher, it was, I don't know, I just started drawing all these animals, uh, just kind of from my subconscious need to do it, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had no idea that I was interested in that, but doing that for, I guess, seven years or whatever, I, I think I was doing one strip a week for, yeah, about seven years. It couldn't, I mean, you can't really help but get experience making characters like that expressive, but it never, you know, it kind of, there's a, there's an evolution in the style of that comic, but it was never a really big problem. It was just more about um, abstracting and simplifying some of the details. Like when, when it started, those animals were more, uh, more textured and more kind of photorealistic and they became a bit anthropomorphized as <laughs> As, as I went on, but uh, yeah, and goofier. I just think about the birds yelling at each other. is always, was always one of my favorite gags. Yeah, yeah that, all that stuff is really fun. So when it comes to working on Isola, I mean, Olwen's the only character, the only animal character in that book who used to be a human that we know of, I guess. And uh, so her performance is has to be very specific in that she's a human. You, you have to see. You have to see a human's emotion through the mask of this tiger. So it's, it's, it's challenge. I mean, it's, it's not the most challenging thing about that book. I'll say that. Like, it, it seems like a very difficult thing to do, but it's, but it actually comes fairly naturally. And maybe that, maybe that's because I drew Charles Christopher for so long. The hard part really is, uh, is, is not making her emote, but, but really moving the story forward and letting people know what's happening when she can only emote when you've only got one speaking character in 90% of the book. So that's, you know, that's kind of the hardest part of the whole thing. I'd imagine so, especially in the instances where Olwen is being commanded or being asked to do something as though she were an animal or something lesser than that. And having mm -hmm. her indignity just really shine through. I really love the kind of the, the complexity of that relationship because Rook is well aware that this is her queen, but the fact that you know, the fact that she no longer looks like a human has, like, can affect even the most, you know, even the most loyal soldier. You know, like, it's just very easy to forget when something is not visually what you expect it to be, or when you're, you know, the context of something changes even slightly, or drastically in this case. It's easy to forget your place. So it's it's a difficult thing to, we're very careful in how we how we craft Rook's dialogue. I mean, it goes through a lot of, a lot of changes till we get exactly the 
the vibe that we want because sometimes how petulant can she be? Like she gets frustrated, but I mean, if she goes overboard, then it's grounds for punishment, really. I mean, she, she can't really talk back to her monarch that way. Yeah. One thing that I was really charmed by this book, or this issue at least, was how everything seemed to be a slow reveal, such as the nature of Olwyn. Because at first, just with the, the shots of them camping in the rain and just being covered up by Rook, it made it seem like she was a pet. And eventually you learn there's so much more to her. Same with blanking on the name, but the creepy old guy in the woods who's following them and then reveals to know all about the queen and, and things like that. Was that intentional on you guys' part to give almost a slow burn quality for all these these reveals? I will start with Brendan. I think so, but it was it was not our initial intention for the reveals or for the burn to be so slow. In fact, and, and we talk about this all the time, our this issue and the series, at least this first arc, was crafted with the assumption that every issue would have a single page story chunk preceding it that gives you all the setup, lays out all the main characters, the inciting incident. In a, in a very brief, this is what happened kind of way, setting you up for the story to come. And, and the reason we wanted to do that was it just made it easier on us to then take the next 20 some odd pages to just do whatever we wanted. Because you, the reader, would know where the characters stand and who they are and what their goals are. And it just never clicked. It never felt right. Carl's drawn it. It's uh, Michelle's colored it. It's beautiful. It just doesn't fit with the rest of the book. And likewise, um, we had scripted all those scenes differently. There's far more dialogue in the original pass, and that dialogue kind of fills in a lot of those gaps for you, like before, or way too early on, I think. And it took us being brave and just continuously editing ourselves and cutting back further and further until we felt like we were at, until we felt we had a nice balance, I think. Um, we also, I mean, like I was, I was worried that we'd do our, um, our draft of that first issue and send it to image and they would, <laughs> they would get back to us asking us what the hell was going <laughs> on. And what was it, like asking us to maybe make things a little more, more clear for people because, um, you know, first issues are, are traditionally fairly explicit in their setup. You know, like they're they're, uh, they're more verbose and they have a very obvious inciting incident and uh, kind of like usually some sort of unexpected hook at the end and, and it's all stuff we didn't want to do. And to, and to their credit, like Image never that didn't say anything at all about it other than, thank you, this looks nice. <laughs> so you've got to feel a bit uh, vindicated for that choice because the... Uh, You're so relieved, to be honest, <laughs> Like, uh, I don't know about Vindicate. I mean, I, I feel, um, I feel, I have, I, well, I always had faith in our approach for us, but I didn't know that, I didn't think it would necessarily work for anyone else. So I feel... Let me tell uh, you, I still feel a little vindicated because as someone who is continually writing work for hire scripts for other companies and being told to do all of, the, all of those other things because otherwise readers can't follow the story, hmm. I feel a bit vindicated. Because I think, I, I know that readers are finding this more challenging to read, but I mean, it's, I think it's also more rewarding at oh, the absolutely. end. It's, we're not, you know, feeding you all the information and quite often working on my other gigs, I'm being told that when I try to leave that stuff out, that I'm not allowed to do that and I'm not given a choice. Huh. 
Because that was one of the, the draws, to, to me at least for this book, was that it really just allows the information to flow in an organic sense, and nothing feels spoon-fed. And if mm-hmm. I can make it the comparison, this really was reminiscent to me of Kurt Busiek and Ben Dewey's Autumn Lands, where they take that the high fantasy concept and they just present it to a reader like they're just an average reader. It's not talking down to them, and I think you guys did that just magnificently with this one. No, thanks. Yeah, I mean, like... Like one of the reasons it works so well in Autumnland is because they have visually staged such a you know such a believable, well-established world. Like so, as soon as you you open that book and, and look at the first couple pages, you have a very you have a lot of faith in the in the storytellers because they clearly have put a lot of thought into how everything works and and uh, and how this thing's going to go. I think it comes down to that for everything really like if you have faith in the people telling the story to deliver something eventually if you feel like you're in good hands then you'll be along for the ride and i think people honestly have i think there's a lot of like traditional story fatigue you know like we see the same kinds of hero stories over and over and over again and they have the same beats and they have the same general kind of setups and payoffs and uh, i just didn't want to i didn't not only did i want to make that i didn't i don't want to consume it anymore i just get so tired of of that sort of you know movie or comic or whatever whatever kind of story it is so maybe people um were happy to have something a bit different maybe we'll see more stuff like this now i don't know i feel like if you guys maintain this quality there's <laughs> there's no way this book doesn't start reaching a broader audience or, or even more more people just because again you guys have done a like a terrific job of presenting a great fantasy world and not giving all the information away right away like the for instance you guys talk about the land that this place this story is taking place in you talk a bit about uh the kingdom or the guards and, and things of that nature without having like exposition sally come in and just talk to the to the reader explaining everything well i i i mean in my experience like whenever i pick up a fantasy novel or something and try to read it, I'm just bombarded with names of things. <laughs> like, like, like it's not even the, it's not even the, the setup of the world. It's just like the multitude of names of people and places and things. And there are all these insane kind of complicated fantasy type names. And I just become confused and exhausted within the first chapter usually. And I'll just not read any more of it. I, I, <laughs> I didn't want to. <laughs> want anything like that <laughs> so it sounds like you guys are just kind of doing the book as you see fit and image is kind of rolling with that that's really cool super cool I think yeah that's images selling point really right like from the beginning it's like the this is we're a company that lets you do comics your way and yeah. i think it's just as as creators who mostly have uh, have for the most part worked for um, companies on licensed material, it's hard to believe that that's ever going to be the case, that you're going to get to do it the way you want to do it. <laughs> they've been so supportive. I mean, the only thing that we kind of knock heads about is um, is just schedule stuff. And usually it's just because Carl and I don't, I mean, we don't know the, the insights of how things should go. So we're just trying to figure it out and present them with the way that we think it should go and uh we're sort of relying on them to give us give us all the information that would tell us that we're doing it wrong mm-hmm. there are a lot of smart people there um yeah. 
and they've got a lot of marketing knowledge and uh, we're kind of just like this this is pretty new to us so I'm always hungry for that kind of feedback and information I'm always really happy to talk to those guys whenever possible I'm going to kind of wrap things up uh, with with this. I had read in an interview you guys did uh, a couple years ago that you were both uh, Dungeons & Dragons players, either growing up or currently. Is there a bit of uh, D&D homebrew world building that you kind of incorporate into building this world of Isola? Oh, interesting. I, I don't think I've ever been like a massive D&D fan. I played a bit. I like a lot of what it's about. I think I'm more interested in the world of D&D than, than actually role-playing. Like, like we were talking about, we were role-playing a lot of like DC superheroes <laughs> and uh, I did. Well, were we? I mean, like, I, I, remember, <laughs> oh, like, maybe we I don't know. I don't know how much we ever played it. Like I, it's the same with, I, remember with playing D&D. It. I, I remember maybe trying to play it once, but mostly I remember just putting together characters and choosing, like putting together teams and things like that. It was for me. It was like all that stuff was really just about making up characters and situations, and the actual mm-hmm. playing of the game was secondary. I did have like a, a group of friends a few years later that I played some other stuff like Shadowrun or something, and that was like that was really fun. It really just depends on who who's running those games. But I was never I was never a guy who could make you know make up those scenarios or or. DM or anything like that. Like, I never wanted that. <laughs> and I don't think I would have been very good at it. <laughs> I did it. I did it when we were at different high schools. I was playing a lot with people from my high school, but I, was, I wasn't I was playing D&D. I only, well, I did play D&D twice with Jason Page and Dave Hooper and Ryan Hanlon. But I mostly ended up playing those Palladium games like Robotech and Ninja Turtles and all the stuff that connected to it, like rifts and ninjas and super spies, (laughs) that D20 system that they had, which was super easy to play. I I played that every now and then. And I also played some Marvel superheroes in in that time. But what always kind of left me cold about it was that I felt like I was writing stories and not getting to tell the stories. And I was... Hmm. It just didn't feel like a storytelling medium that I properly understood and one that felt too ephemeral. Like, I think I think at that point, as I was crafting stories, I just wanted to write them like I just wanted to be making comics. (laughs) I didn't want to be playing games. Do you think it was because because the story was out of your hands as soon as people got involved and started interacting and manipulating the outcomes? I think so. I think so. So uh, my wife is an avid Dungeons and Dragons player. She's she's sitting like five feet away from me with her headphones, and I don't think she can hear me. Um, <laughs> but she she still has a D and D group that she goes and plays with whenever they can all get together. As as everyone is you know a professional adult, so it's very <laughs> difficult to get the whole group together anymore. But when they do, it's like full on, and their DM is apparently the best. His name is Steel Philippec. He's uh Is that his real name? Yeah, his real name is Steel. Jeez OP. Well yeah. that's Can you imagine the best dungeon master in New York City is named Steel? <laughs> it almost writes itself. It's true. Well... Reality. Always more <laughs> thrilling than fantasy. 
Well, I do hope that you guys, in addition to success in the book, yeah, of course, but I do hope you guys give D&D a second chance uh, now that you're older and more mature. Uh, but Carl, could we? do you think we should put together, like, after we've done the first volume or something, instead of, uh, as like a special event to promote the uh, collected edition of volume one, should we do an Isola D&D session? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get Steel to run it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, he he went out and bought Isla number one and tweeted about it and put it on Facebook because he loved it. So oh. I think we're doing something right. We got the D&D crowd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's because there's a map in the book. No one would care if there wasn't a map in the book. <laughs> it is. It's not entirely true. Oh, that... speaking of which, someone, someone uh, I just saw on Twitter, someone called out the fact that the map is based on Quebec. <laughs> which, is, which is totally true. Oh, um, really? The map, the map in the back is, is based on Eastern Canada. And part of the reason for that, there are two reasons. that This is a scoop for you. I haven't talked about this to anybody, really. But, <laughs> but uh, part of the reason for that is a, is a specific geography around where Mar is located. And part of it is just because I, um, I've always been, I've always thought it was important as Canadians to like, to put Canada in our fiction. I like, because I remember we'd come up with stories and I had friends who would say, why, you know, why don't you, why are you setting this in Toronto? It should be in New York or something. And I'd say, why we live in, you know, why? And they'd say, well, New York's way more interesting. And I would say, oh. well, it's way more interesting because people write stories about it all the time. <laughs> like why, if, why not put, you know, why not put stuff from your own country and culture into the, the things you're making. And, and also because, you know, like um, middle earth was, was based so much on, on uh, great Britain kind of creating this, this folklore for, Tolkien's homeland. I just thought it was a nice, a nice way to approach. Makes sense. Seventy-five uh, percent of the creative team on Isola is either Canadian or based in Canada. <laughs> Me and Carl are are Canadian. I'm living in Brooklyn now, but um, Michelle, our colorist, who goes by M Sassy K, she uh, lives in Canada now. So so much of that book is is got Canadian flavor baked in, anyways. It and it's kind of maple yeah. Well, guys, <laughs> it has been an absolute treat to talk with you about this book, which we are just, uh, I, we are in love with it. It's every, it's hitting all the right oh, notes, and we only wish you guys the best of luck in the future. And speaking of the future, Isola number two comes out May 9th. That's right. Well, guys. May 9th. I think number three is June 6th. And you want to stick around for that third issue, believe me. It's a doozy. That's when we learned that this is actually prehistoric Canada? <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having us. <laughs>